0: Hello and welcome to episode 47 of the Sock Takes pod, sponsored by Roughneck Scarves. I'm your host tonight, the man with the best hair in American soccer, Nipun Chopra. Joining me as always <laughs> is the founder of Sock Takes and infamous lanyard king, Kevin Johnson. Kevin, what's going on?
1: Just collecting my lanyards, man. Just loving life.
0: I love it. Completing our section of co-hosts is the man who spends much of his time and his life subtweeting other indie 11 fans. Sweet baby, Aaron, Aaron, what's going on?
2: It is a great night. I'm happy to have you back on the pod and hosting. This is fantastic. Napoon. this is going to be an amazing night.
0: It's always fun. Joining us for the first time on the Sock Takes pod is someone who epitomizes American soccer, someone who has played the game at every level, whether we're talking about youth soccer, amateur soccer, professional soccer, as well as has represented the U.S. men's national team. But you most likely know him for two reasons. He was recently a presidential candidate for the office of USSF president and, of, and because of his consistently excellent work with NBC Sports every weekend where he subtly triggers all Man United supporters. Join me in welcoming the person with the second best hair in American soccer, Kyle Martino. Kyle, welcome to the show.
3: Well, you know, speaking of Manchester United supporters, you know, being second place is good enough sometimes. I just <laughs> I, I feel satisfied. <laughs>
0: Thanks a lot for that, Kyle. Uh, I shall let that one slide. Uh, <laughs> but it's really, truly great to have you on the show and really Thanks, excited uh, that you're joining us. Um, Kyle, we, we're kind of looking past the USSF presidential election now, and we'll focus mostly on the future and the present. Yeah. Uh, but I do want to start with something that's kind of transitioning from there. And it's something I wonder about, because follow, I've followed you on social media for a long time. I feel like I've been there not physically but kind of followed your come growth dr- as a parent really uh, and i'm curious what toll did the last few months have on you and your family
3: i mean that was the hardest thing when i was sitting down to make the decision about stepping away from mbc uh, to run for us soccer president knowing that um There was an outside chance to win, but opening up the door to if if I did pull off the unlikely, the change and the shift in in our life and the challenge of of that for my family was one that um, I I didn't take lightly. So uh, the first conversation I had before I decided to do that was with my wife in the kitchen until 3 a.m., And without her, none of it would have been possible. I mean, she she not only supported me in the effort, but then financially supported us when I was unemployed for the first time in a very long time. And, uh, you know, the toll it took on my family was just I I was I was 24 seven trying to not only campaign and understand the political mechanisms, but really tie back into the machinery of soccer in the country and learn. About how it had evolved, uh, starting back at the ground level, and it had been so long since I was at that level. So, you know, their 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 dad and the and uh, and husband was um, was definitely mm-hmm. absentee. So I, uh, I I'm I'm relieved that I'm able to uh, to step back into those roles and and spend a lot of time with my family afterwards. Uh,
0: so um, the, the other thing I wanted to ask you is about your role with NBC. Uh, I'd say you're considered one of the best, if if not the best American analysts out there based on your work with NBC. Uh, in the modern day of big data, and I say this as a scientist and someone who enjoys all the ex you know expected goals and all that stuff, but in the modern day of big data with where anyone can write pages and pages of analysis, how do you set yourself apart?
3: Yeah, I mean that's um that, that there's an interesting uh, I, I think. I would say confluence of of analyzing through your eye and and analyzing the numbers and sometimes they line up and sometimes they don't. So um, I, I definitely am someone that really appreciates the scientific side of the game and yeah. and enjoys expected goals and heat mats and schemes and zones and taking a look at all that stuff. Um, but I, I I think maybe what sets me apart, or at least I I try to be as a pundit is someone that, um, you know, still just trusts my eye and still just trusts my experiences and, and, and that sort of intuition and what that tells you. And sometimes it doesn't line up with the numbers. Uh, and sometimes it gets in a lot of, and a lot of heat with, uh, with fans that want to throw numbers at you. Um, but, uh, you know, it's just, I, I love being able to, um, to just trust what soccer looks like to me and, and hopefully have the, uh, the science to back it up.
1: And Kyle, with kind of your analyst shield down, kind of your guard down for a moment, could you kind of walk us through maybe your, um, your emotional reaction, uh, your, your first emotions you felt once the USMNT missed the world cup.
3: Just heartbreak. I mean, it's rare now that I'm able to put the, the, take the analyst hat off. Um, and and just be a fan again um you know w- what's interesting one of the reasons that um you know being a pundit is is so fun but also so so uh, challenging at times is people think that you carry bias in it but actually the neutrality of the position is the joy i mean i'm really just there to celebrate and enjoy uh, the competition and the entertainment but um I, I don't really get to bring any even if i wanted to any of that that bias or that predisposition or that passion for a team that I'm covering. Uh, so the U S is that for me and I don't cover them in any way anymore. So that day or that night, I should say, I was in the, um, I was in the bar and, uh, I was a, um, I was a fan, you know, and, and I was heartbroken just like all the, uh, all the other fans. And, um, it, it took a while for that pain to go away, and stepping forward into the election was, was in a way, how I was going to assuage those frustrations and, uh, you know, and be more than just a fan bitching in a bar, which is what I was that night.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and you're also a minority owner of RCD Mallorca. Um, um, along with a couple other prominent names, and a pretty famous friend of yours, I believe, reached out to you initially for for that to happen. Could you tell our readers a little bit about the the backstory of uh, how you came to invest in the club?
3: Yeah, so um we, when I was living in l a and I'm in Connecticut now close to the studio, another um, sort of going back to your question about family, just to make sure uh, I'm, able to see my kids more and come after work to tuck them in and spend the day with them. So when I was in LA before the family was big, uh, we used to go down and play pickup soccer down by the beach with a great group of washed up old pros. And, you know, Landon would come down, Del Piero, Eddie Lewis, Alexi Lawless and Nash and Stu. And we called it the Venice Premier League. And, um, we had a, (laughs) you know, a slice of heaven there outside of the hour it took me to drive 10 miles in the morning to go play in it. Um, and, and just after a game one day, I was sitting there with Stu and Steve, and he just said, I've got a crazy you know, proposition. Um, he had been approached by Robert Sarver about uh, buying a, a, a football team, and there was a lot of talk about where to do it, to go to England, go to, go to Spain, do it in the U.S., and they had kicked the tires and been down the road a bit before we came along. Um, and when Steve agreed to come on a, as an owner, there was a desire to have... Uh, soccer people joining him and uh yeah Stu and I and we I think took 30 seconds to decide uh <laughs> yeah absolutely we'll do that <laughs> um you know it's kind of like the computer game you know the uh the the manager series that everyone probably played in college when they should have been studying and <laughs> know, to be able to have the actual real life version of that um and be a part of such an incredible historic club that's fallen on difficult times and has dropped below its pedigree. Um, you know, I'm humbled to be a part of that in a small way to try and get this incredible club with its remarkable fan base
2: back up into La Liga where they deserve to be. Kyle, this is Aaron. And uh, thanks for joining us, by the way. And
1: yeah,
2: you brought up something a little bit ago and you were talking about celebrating and, and joy or watching the game and how you view it and the eye test and all these things. and. Recently, I, I was kind of contemplating how I'm viewing the game and, and whether all this extra study we've done has changed our viewership and, and the way we approach the game. And do we still get excitement out of it? The answer for me is I certainly do. You said you were looking for it. What do you look for when you when you talk about um, the joy of the sport or the celebration when you see that?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think, like, you are the perfect example of where I think – uh, it takes me and like the sort of signature of the pundit I am is the difference between Manchester City and Manchester United. I mean, I, I have no affinity for either club. I mean, I, as I said, I don't support a club. Um, I, I support a, a a style. It's almost like music. You know, when you hear something, it's just amazing to your ear, um, which doesn't mean that it's the best band or the best genre or the best anything, but what, what Pep Guardiola tried to, to do last season that brought him a lot of criticism. Um, I I just absolutely loved the, the pursuit of trying to be the perfect aesthetically pleasing attacking minded team. Um, and so if, if I bring any bias into the game, that, uh, is a departure from maybe the, the stats that should lead you in a certain direction or, other, other sort of metrics that you should use to be able to identify quality or progression or form, um, you know, that, that's kind of the the Montague Capulet situation for me, the yin and the yang that, that Mourinho tries to do it in, in a way that I, I just don't enjoy. But as a pundit and by as, you know, someone who's supposed to be objective sitting in that seat and just analyzing the game, you you have to respect it. Of course, you have to respect that he's one of the greatest managers ever. Um, that he has stabilized an historic club that had a serious challenge and a huge dip after their greatest ever manager. Um, but I just think that's like the perfect. You, you know, if you're going to do a cross section of me as a as a pundit and try to you know deconstruct it, I mean, I think my my joy and my flaw is in I, my my taste for. You know, even what, what Arsene Wenger was trying to do in Dying in Beauty at Arsenal, just that that pursuit of being a team that tries to win a game that feels artistic and poetic.
2: That Dying in Beauty imagery is, is haunting and it's staying with me right now. I was formulating my next question and I can't uh, actually shake that, but I did want to bring up something else that you mentioned a little bit ago, which makes me question your actual ability to analyze the game. You said that uh, Landon Donovan was washed up, and I mean,
1: come on! Yeah.
2: Come on! I mean, I, I don't know how far apart you guys are separated in age, but uh, he's still... He's, he won't let it die.
3: Uh, you know, it's so funny. So Landon's... Um,
2: we, so we... he calls you. What's he say to you? Like, you guys talk. You're in the Venice Premier League. What does he say to you?
3: So well, he kept me in the dark about going back and playing again. I remember the first time... I knew he was coming back. I had talked to him and he had decided he was going to come out of retirement. And, uh, you know, I, I kept the secret, um, which I thought I earned enough to to know the secret this time around, but was totally kept in the dark. I mean, I love that <laughs> he's going to just try to go as long as he can. Um, I mean, he's, he's, he's the best, you know, and, and obviously Christian Pulisic has an opportunity to become that at some point. And, and I'm hoping, I'm rooting for him that he does. But, you know, he's he's the best we've produced. So seeing him still play, I love it. And we grew up as teenagers. I'm a, I am ai was on the under-18 national team when he was on that amazing under-17 national team. Um, and, you know, he was kind of the number 10 star for them and I was for the 18s. And there was a bit of a rivalry back then, which basically was just my jealousy that he was better than I was. And their <laughs> team did so well in a tournament that by... You know, the luck of the draw our age made us too young, too old for and too young for the under 20s the time before. But uh, I love seeing him play again, man. I, I mean, go for it as long as you can. I mean, seeing Drogba, like Drogba, like what Didier D- D- Drogba's was doing right now. You know, it's not like I Mike, mean, it's not like Michael. Was, when you were like, dude, don't go play for the Wizards. Come on, man. Just just stop. Like, <laughs> I, I, I'm all for these guys just going as long as they can.
2: Well, uh, this will be my last kind of minor follow-up. Was Landon Donovan ever Rookie of the Year? I don't know.
3: (laughs) No, I think he was too busy playing
0: for for Byron Leverkusen. Or or I don't (laughs) know. Um, Kyle, you were talking about objectivity, um, and I'm wondering, and I guess this is something that I I think about a lot uh, personally, too, When you're doing your analysis for NBC, are you really trying to approach it from a lens of true objectivity? Do you think there is true objectivity in any sort of analysis, especially for something that you're as passionate about uh, in terms of, in in this case, which is soccer?
3: Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. I I don't know. I don't think there is true objectivity. And listen, um, one of the reasons you know, we're given the honor. And I mean, it's the, it's the greatest job ever. I feel so lucky every time I get the opportunity to do do it in the studio or at the stadium. Um, you are, you are supposed to bring your, your, your prejudice and your, your, your bias based on experience that you've had. Um, you can't erase all of that. I mean, what you shouldn't bring is, is a confirmation biased. And you know, that that's where there's a tough line because you know it's manchester united fans i love them to death and they're they're right i am super critical of jose mourinho and i and i and i look through a lens that can be i think you know it it can seem biased at times but it's you know your personality and your life experiences and being a playmaker and, and growing up watching that ix team with with Litman and and, and finidi george and cliver and i mean just Barcelona teams and, uh, you know, being a a child of, you know, the Diego Maradona era where I fell in love with Argentine soccer and Boca Juniors and River Plate and Ortega and Raquel May, I am someone that is drawn to um, an attacking style and a bit of a risk-taking irreverence. And it definitely paints my my analysis. Um, So in terms of objectivity, I'm, I'm not rooting for any coach or any player or any team, but when it comes to a style of soccer that just is pleasing to my eye and it, and I can't help but let it shape how I, how I talk about the game. I mean, that's, that's, that's
0: where it's impossible to be objective. And and to your point, I mean, I, I'm a Man United supporter, have been my whole life, but I don't ever find any issue with what you say because it's, it's basically what I completely stuff that I agree with because I I have the same lens of watching soccer, which is the style Mourinho plays is effective and he deserves credit for that, but it's still not, not my cup of tea. And I, I don't think it's something Manchester United supporters should be proud of, but that's another well, I also whole
3: thing. like. I also think um, when he got the job in my position, I think some people try to be characters and some people, you know, I guess in basketball there's the skip Bayless or, or, you know, in, in overall sports, there are these people that make definitive statements and they just want it to be eye-catching and, and controversial. Um, I make really definitive statements sometimes, like I, when Jose Mourinho was hired, said it was a big mistake and he wasn't gonna win a title at Manchester United. Now, I can't let my commentary and my analysis be led by a desire to make sure I'm right there, um, But I, but I felt strongly in that. And some of what paints what I'm seeing um, I just know that he he he's um, stabilizing a club which he deserves credit for. He's winning trophies in the first season, which he deserves credit for. I don't have to like the way he's doing it, but I absolutely right. have to. Respect. The thing that I do have a problem with is, you know, treatment of Luke Shaw and even yep. and some of his behavior and calling Arsene Wenger a specialist in failure. I mean, some of that stuff that people might love, um, that absolutely is going to be part of my analysis of, you know, who someone is off the field and in in, in in press conferences. And, you know, when you're on your private time and all that stuff, I mean, that's that, that stuff I don't care about. I don't tend to worry about the, you know, the 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 tabloid stuff or, you know, I mean, someone should have a private life that you're not judging them on in terms of their job. But what we see when he's in his job, you know, I, I just I think many times he deserves criticism and I give it to him.
0: Yeah, no, we're on the same page with that. Let's switch gears here and talk about American soccer a little bit. Um, looking past the USSF presidential election, we we know uh, uh, what I want to know from you is what at this point are three things that you would like to see improve or I guess the best way to ask the question, three biggest issues facing U.S. soccer uh, that Corde- uh, President Cordero has to work on?
3: Yeah, the biggest is um, it's a top-down approach, and um, that's a big problem. They, they they have a trickle-down economics idea of how you grow a national team, but also a soccer culture, and um, that was one of the biggest pillars of, of my campaign is to is to change the culture and 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 flip it and put the federation underneath the soccer pyramid. So that the touch points are felt most by the the highest numbers of participants, that the badge really means something, that U.S. Soccer is in the communities, and um, the the investment and the attention is placed on uh, the kids that are supposed to just be enjoying this game, and that that major disconnect uh, really really worries me, um, and it's the reason that I after the election decided to take on this role. Uh, with Street Soccer USA, a, a nonprofit focusing on just those things, using um, soccer as a social vehicle to bring the game and programs and education and health and wellness to communities that need it most. Um, and I'm humbled they thought I could chair their national board, and uh, I'm honored to take that position. So I'm going to try to focus on those areas with this great organization. And. Um, because I don't feel us soccer is doing a good job there. The next area is, um, technically we still have the same people that got us into this mess, uh, calling the shots. So, you know, that that's worrying that we had the optics of change with a new president, but, um, Carlos has become a, a, a peripheral figure and the, the construction of a technical committee, um, it, it, it's, it seems it's just the same people that have been there all along um, that are culpable in in this incredible low point and this catastrophic failure for the men not to qualify for Russia. Now, they're trying to address it by hiring a GM for the men and the women, um, but so far have been unsuccessful in, in, in convincing people to take that job. I, I know a few people who have interviewed, and the feedback has been— Uh, the the job description is unclear. It's vague. The scope of responsibilities is narrow. So you're responsible for, um, failures or, or issues that are outside of your control. And it, and it does feel a bit of a scapegoat role right now. So, um, I'm hopeful that, that the committee that's there are going to, they're going to listen to the feedback and continue to flesh out those roles. And, and give us what U.S. soccer has needed for a very long time, a technical director, someone who can help not only the national team, that's the end of the conveyor belt, but can help uh, improve coaching and development of players and identification of players uh, top to bottom in this pyramid. And, and I'm just – I'm skeptical they're going about it the right way. And I guess the last one is, is the fan outreach. Um, you know, tickets should be – uh, and rather than than increasing in cost to to bring in more revenue, they, they should be more affordable. How they how they decide where to play, um, what tickets cost, it should be all about inclusion and bringing more fans and even the casual observers who haven't fallen in love with the team or the game yet uh, into the stadiums. I went to go see the U.S. play um, in the first qual or the first friendly after the. Um, after the failure to qualify at the StubHub, and uh, it was a half-empty stadium, and I went and bought a hundred tickets and passed and got on Twitter and said, "Hey, you know, hundred tickets for whoever wants to come—they're yours." And I, I couldn't I couldn't hold on to them. They, the people in the parking lot came and grabbed them from me. And there were people that drove three or four hours that weren't planning on coming to the game that saw my tweet. So
2: mm-hmm.
3: and I, I, I just really I worry that we're turning it into a bit of a corporate environment where uh, we're, we're missing the point of, you know, what the Amer- American Outlaws and other great organizations have done to make it a more inclusive and, and mobilize the fan base behind the U.S. soccer team.
0: To, to follow up on that real quick, do you think we are? Do you think it's possible we are beyond the point of no return in that sense about the commercialization and uh, not that this was ever a lower middle class game in America, but lack of a better term, gentrification of the game. Are we beyond that point in American soccer, or can we revert back to making it more accessible?
3: Well, uh, if 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 the motive is a profit motive or or a revenue motive. Um, I think you could argue that the, the, the untapped market that's out there, I mean, look at the fact that the, that we've sold the most amount of tickets for the World Cup in Russia. I think the knee-jerk reaction is to say, wow, like all the U.S. soccer fans don't care that their team's not there. I mean, that's just such an obtuse statement. Obviously, it's all of the Americans' and and people who celebrate other other national teams and, and have other affinity. Um, and I just, I, I think that we have to realize that filling stadiums and making that atmosphere compelling is a way to diversify and differentiate from a crowded sports market where other sports have head starts or are deeper in the cultural fabric. And we have to become more enticing to people that already love this game or are ready to love this game. And I think... The, the cost of the ticket is a barrier. So, you know, lowering that cost could actually bring in more revenue in terms of packing stadiums and uh, making a more compelling watch, which then in turn, uh, it, it will raise the ratings because that's the biggest revenue draw. And that, that's the one area that's plateaued, whether it's our professional league or our, our US soccer team. I mean, you've got a great atmosphere and you tend to have a great game and that, that ups the the intensity and the compelling nature of the competition.
1: And we put a feeler out there on Twitter to see if any of our listeners had any questions for you, Kyle. And uh, surprise, surprise, we got a couple Premier League questions. So this uh, first one of two is from Twitter user at NWS13. He asks, Kyle, what are Arsenal doing wrong and what would be your solutions?
3: So Arsenal uh, have solved one of them. It was time to move on from Arsene Wenger. And I had said it um, two seasons ago. And, um, you know, at that point met with some criticism from Arsenal fans and then said it every, every season since then. And more and more have, have come on board. I I get the sentimental feel. Um, I get the special nature of someone who changed not only Arsenal, but, but the Premier League, um, you know, he will be celebrated. A statue will be erected. I mean, he's an incredible manager, but the, the, the demarcation point and, and, you know, diminishing returns was clear. Um, and Stan Kroenke basically gave Arson Wenger the power to fire himself if he decided to. And, and, you know, that, that, that was very clear when Arson was, uh, attending board meetings where they were talking about his future, but also we all knew that it was Arson's decision whether he stayed or whether he go or whether he went. Um, and, and that was just a massive mistake where the culture of Arsenal was so dependent on one person in an era of departments where most clubs, the coach is ahead head of a department rather than the head of a club. And so um, they've been late to that, but I think they've done a remarkable job behind the scenes with Sven Mislintat and, um, and uh, Raul, I can never pronounce his, his last name. The director of football came over from Barcelona who was there for about a decade. I mean, they've been building the infrastructure behind the scenes. to to handle the transition out of the Arsene Wenger era. And I truly believe that they asked him to walk away, that behind the scenes, the timing of this announcement, if you read between the lines, uh, there was every possibility that Arsene Wenger stayed past this summer or even waited to the summer to make the decision. And they need to find a coach right now before the World Cup. They need to be searching today. So they've already figured out a lot of what I've been saying all along they need to do. Uh, the next side of it all it all hinges on the type of manager they bring in because the quality of the players that are there, if they add another defensive midfielder and center back, I mean, it, it is a talented team capable of something special. If they have a manager that can that can have them, they can mitigate the attacking risk they take by coaching them without the ball, and I don't think that's really happened a lot.
1: And our other Twitter question is a Tottenham question from user at CheeseBladeAU. He asks, what type of uh, personnel change could Spurs make this summer to have the biggest positive impact?
3: Well, I think Harry Kane needs a legitimate um, competitor. Uh, They have to obviously, I think, plan for the possibility they lose him, not next season, but maybe the season after that. But uh, they've never been able to find a suitor, you know, someone that can be an understudy and capable of filling his, his shoes. And I think it was clear he's not right right now. Um, In the FA Cup semifinal, he looked like he was struggling a bit after, you know, uh, another ligament, ankle ligament injury. I think they need another goal-scoring winger. I don't think um, Lucas, as much as I love him, Um, he's just, you know, he's had a dip in his career and is trying to have a a renaissance. Um, You know, I, I don't think they need a lot of pieces you know, them and Liverpool, though, it's, a, it's a good example of the question you asked before about, you know, the science aspect of it. I mean, all the numbers, if you look at Spurs before this season, accruing the most points uh, in the past two seasons, and no, no team had had more points in the past two seasons than them, and you, you look at Liverpool, where their numbers look exactly like Brendan Rodgers, um, Jurgen Klopp's, that is, you know, the numbers can kind of you know, they can kind of trick you sometimes. It was clear that Liverpool were better under Klopp than they were on, under Brendan Rodgers, and they were heading in the right direction, even though numbers were used to, to debunk that. But Spurs is a tough one, because all the numbers tell you they should be winning titles, and they should be getting to, over that last hurdle, and winning trophies. Um, and, and I just wonder if it's less a Spurs criticism and more a Pochettino one, where eventually... You have to ask yourself, this guy's linked with some of the biggest jobs in the world. It's clear he's an incredibly talented manager. But, but if he constantly fails to get teams over that last hurdle, uh, you know, question marks have, have to be there. So you know, I don't think there are a lot of pieces missing. I, I just think they need to finally change their wage structure, uh, pay players more to keep them, pay players more to attract them, and spend big on two players. And, and I honestly think they're right there in the title race.
2: I want to pull it back to American soccer, if you don't mind. We yeah. we know you have a domestic background, like we talked about. MLS uh, Rookie of the Year. You played with somebody that we know, John Bush at Columbus Crew. Yeah. Um, he spent the last two years with Indy 11. You have also been a commentator for domestic leagues. Did you not cover MLS as well as the Premier League? So – I guess you know a little bit about both leagues and as far as drama goes and maybe I'm leading too much. Why is it that we have so much American viewership, eyeballs focused on the Premier League and and so much is forgotten domestically?
3: Um, I mean, I think the easy answer there is is um, is equality disparity. I mean, that's that's always going to be one of the the most difficult gaps to close. Um, But the fact of the matter is, you know, people watch uh, college sports just as much, if not more, than they watch professional sports. So quality is not always the main draw. Um, Affinity ends up being, I think, the most important uh, deciding factor on whether or not you tune into a game or not. Um, You know, I I know the promotion relegation argument is, is a a contentious one. I don't understand why. I mean, I think just because the promotion relegation crowd has gone about it in such a rabid way and, you know, are there to basically steamroll anyone and turn any comment into an anti pro rel,
2: you know, comment. Um, and I
3: wish we were having you are episode.
2: legitimately you are legitimately making a lot of friends on this podcast.
3: <laughs> well, I mean, it's so funny. I've actually even reached out like I one time called Ted Westervelt and talked to him for a while. And he's a sane, very intelligent, seemingly We've heard very that compassionate, balanced guy. I think the, the Twitter um, persona is an act. I mean, I, I, unfortunately, I think he's a bit of a false prophet that's out there. Fighting for something that he's terrified if it actually happens, what does he have to do after that? Um, Because you know his his behavior is so counterproductive um, to to what he's trying to accomplish, and and I I give him a lot of credit for moving the discussion forward and keeping it at the forefront, but it just becomes easy to to discredit it when it's done in such a vile and vitriolic way. because the discussion is an important one, and it's and it's relevant to what you're talking about. I honestly think that one of the ways you grow the culture in this country in terms of wanting to switch on to watch the professional leagues is to grow that affinity locally. And it's hard to do it locally when there isn't a sporting meritocracy and the team right down the road doesn't have upward, upward mobility. So... Um, you know, I grew up watching the Brooklyn Italians because that was professional soccer to me without a professional league. I mean, I, I loved that and enjoyed that just as much as I enjoyed, uh, you know, watching AC Milan and Donadoni on the weekends because it meant something to me. It was important. I saw it. It was right there. It was community. So one way you you fix this issue of stagnation and, and the plateaued ratings for uh, our professional league here. Um, is is to eventually open the system and have promotion relegation. Not only is it a compelling, um, competitive format, uh, it, it will differentiate in a sports landscape where where teams celebrate a bit more mediocrity and the regular season doesn't have the fire and the drama that uh, an open system does. But it also will just it will develop it will develop this local affinity that will trump any. Uh, quality gap, any quality disparity. I mean, the reason that people will you know, sell out a, a, a Yale football game uh, and some of those people won't go to see the Giants is it, not because Yale's better. You know, I mean, it's just because it means so much to them to support that group. So listen, I know and I'll be the first to say there are myriad challenges to doing it in this country. But I think we all need to agree that, that it, it can be and should be the future if we can all sort of get together and plan it out.
0: So I'm going to jump in here, and because we know we have only a minute or two left with you, Kyle. One short question before we let you go: um, Would you invest in lower division soccer? Yeah,
3: of course. I mean, I, I am. I did invest in lower division soccer in Spain, for the very reason that I just explained doesn't happen here. Um, I mean, I, I I've been asked to uh, be a part of lower division um, ownership groups or technical um, technical groups and, and be their uh, director of football and certain things, those things have come. And I, I just don't, at this point, with my NBC commitment, have the time to commit to that the way I'd really like to. Um, if there was an open system, it, it would immediately become more enticing. And, and, you know, I speak from a soccer investor myself, but I've spoken to not only many soccer investors, but I've talked to networks. And, and I've, and I've, I had conversations during the campaign with the people that make decisions on rights packages. And I said, if I told you in five years, the system was opening, would you, would you bid on, on that package today? I mean, would you, would you bid on either the second division or the first division right now, based on it being open and would that increase what you'd be willing to spend? And almost all of them said, yeah, of course. I mean, the, the, there is a true interest and desire to invest in lower leagues, and and that's where the infrastructure is built that doesn't exist now that can prop up a first division so one day it can be switched on. And, um, you know, will there be volatility? I mean, is it a great financial model? I mean, yes, there will be volatility. No, it's not the perfect financial model, but I mean, that's that's sports. I mean, it's it's- it's entertainment and there's going to be a long line of people willing to take over that franchise if, if you drop down into
0: the second division and don't you know don't have the stomach for it anymore man I agree with every single word uh, Kevin you can lead us out
1: yeah I just want to say thanks to all of our patrons of course the number one way to support the sock takes pod is to go to patreon.com socktakes also thank you to our sponsor Roughneck scarves official scarf supplier of MLS usl and and us soccer get custom scarves for your group or team at roughneckscarves.com
0: kyle we want to thank you so much for joining us absolute pleasure uh would love to have you back sometime to talk soccer with you anytime great work guys love chatting with you thank you this was episode 34 of the sock takes pod